0: Welcome to the Top of the Pile podcast, where you'll find some of the most interesting authors in conversation about everything from their lives, their books, and their big ideas. From health, science, and true crime, to fiction, history, and romance, we'll bring you fascinating conversations about subjects you never even knew about, and some that you do. You can also get more bookish recommendations by subscribing to the Top of the Pile newsletter, just visit simonandschuster.com.au to join our mailing list. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversation.
1: So I'm Kira Maya Phillips, and I'm a bookseller at Berkeley Books in Sydney. And I am extremely excited, super delighted, to interview Helen Jukes, the author of *A Honeybee Heart Has Five Openings*, a stunning memoir that I think very quietly. And brilliantly and very tenderly follows a year of bee king, beekeeping after you, Helen, were gifted a colony. I Thank would, you for having me. Oh, absolutely. It's a pleasure. And I would actually love to hear about the early days of beekeeping, which um, started in a very urban part of the world. Yeah,
0: I was living in London Um I hadn't been there long and I was probably in my mid-twenties and a friend told me about a friend of hers called Luke who had hives all across the city. He was a theatre director at that time um, and was directing theatre in the winter and had started keeping bees through the summer. And I think at the time that I met him, he had around 50 hives all across the city, from community gardens to rooftops to council estates all sorts and I thought he sounded like such an interesting person that I asked for an introduction um, and asked him if he would take me to go and see a hive and so he took me to a place called Coram's Fields which is right in the centre of London mm. um, and there's a, a, a tiny strip of, of um, wild space just behind the back of a cafe there and he had two hives there and I remember There being a moment when he took me, and and I had to put on the beekeeping suit, where I suddenly realised, oh, this might actually be quite scary. (laughs) Um, I think up until then I just thought it might be quite cool. Yeah, right. So Um, there was a moment of fear. Yeah, 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 yeah. and real, like real fear—the kind of fear that I guess I don't often feel in a city. Yeah, there were. Tens of thousands of bees in a colony in summer. So when you take the lid off a hive, they start lifting up and crawling out, and and it's quite disconcerting
1: at first. Definitely. No, I bet. I think I still get disconcerted. Yeah, sure. (laughs) After a few years of being quite well acquainted with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The wonder doesn't stop. No, not at all. And in in your book, you talk about those early days. There was a moment when you realised where that nothing is as at first seems uh, and particularly in a city that you never know what could be you know hidden behind a window or on a roof or in the in the recesses of a wall can you talk about what what that was like to yeah it was I mean I guess it it
0: was such a nice um, feeling for me to go from a quite blinkered state I was working in an Office at that time, and um, I had a kind of rat run route that I would cycle from my home in Hackney to the um, into central London. Um, and some days I felt like I wasn't doing much more than getting up, cycling my rat run route, sitting at a desk and then uh, cycling back. Um, and I think when I spend too much time doing that, I can become quite blinkered in my thoughts and in my seeing and um, and in my body. And somehow um, becoming aware of the hives being in these sort of hidden places, but also the life of the bees flying between office blocks and oh, into yeah. gardens and around opened things up for me in a different way. The city felt more alive
1: somehow, I think. And you talk about, just related to that, about hidden, about, related to this hidden doors and hidden windows, you mm-hmm. you mentioned needing a hidden door that you felt blocked in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, but what struck me is that you don't walk out. You go into the back garden And there's this constant theme in the book about opening up by closing in. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Are they opposing forces? Did they come together at any point? Yeah. Oh, I've got so many answers to (laughs) that. I'm sure they're all great. (laughs)
0: Um, I mean, I guess if I think about the sort of tradition of of nature writing and of travel writing, quite often... um, People write about going out and going to a very different space and somewhere that they've never been before and somewhere that's foreign in a way. Um, And I think I was really interested in what it meant um, and what would happen if I didn't go out, if I didn't escape, if Mm. I stayed where I was, and if my escape was um, happening within the confines of a... Small um, and quite packed in terrace garden, rectangular garden, and yeah, have, is that enough of an answer? <laughs> I don't think I have answered. No, very that's well. fantastic. Yeah, cause... I I think it's really interesting to me, and that, and that I guess that sort of became an inquiry for the year: what what would happen if if I stayed and if I looked and if my outs if my escape was also
1: inside. So I guess because you'd been previous to having the colony in this garden in Oxford you'd been moving around a lot and much like many people of um our generation you know feeling quite rootless but very mobile and 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 having to deal with the consequences of that mobility yeah. so yeah. and you also talk about the the idea of home of it being a place where you can from where you can make sense of the world how does that relate, you know, to that, to the idea of home? Do we need to rewrite that idea in a way?
0: Mm. Mm. Yeah,
1: I I guess
0: I, at the point that I moved to Oxford and that I got the hive of my own, I um I I think I'd just turned thirty, maybe I was thirty one. Um and like you said, I think I I maybe reached up a kind of crux point mm. um where I'd realised that I'd been moving around a lot up until then and shifting between jobs and shifting between friendship groups and um, almost felt like so much change had happened that I wasn't sure anymore mm. what would stay or what what would be a certainty um, and maybe life was going to be like that. But if it was, then what did that mean about home? And I mean, maybe it's a common thing, I don't know, but um, I think... Around that time, I also found that I had a really, I had a motivation to make home in a mm. way. And I guess I was wondering a lot about what that means in a world that is very unfixed and where I may not be in the same place for very long. And in that way, the bees were really interesting to me because they are, I mean, We've been keeping them for many thousands of years, but they've never fully domesticated and they're not dependent on the hives that we've built for them, the homes that we've built for them. And they would very naturally build a home in a different place. Or, they're adaptive. Yeah, they're adaptive, exactly. And they always carry this ability to make home inside them, wherever they go. Wow. Um,
1: what an ability. Yeah, what a, wow. what an ability. So should, do, yeah. do we need to adopt that? Because we're very physical and tangible in our ideas of home
0: aren't mm, we? yeah 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 and they're yeah. very fixed right yeah 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 um, I got really one of the things we were talking about before we started this interview was um, etymology and I got really into etymology during that year and um, one of the most earliest meanings of home is is n- not actually related to the, the house as a physical structure but a state of being in mm. the self and um, and I really, I really like that.
1: Oh, that's yeah, beautiful. Definitely something I think we would benefit from yeah. as well. And I, throughout the book, you have as a companion a bee researcher, François Hubert. Yeah. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Yeah. Can you... It's a fascinating character. Can you tell us a bit about him and what did it feel like to have him as a companion? Throughout?
0: Yeah, so François Hubert was a Swiss natural historian writing in the 17th century um, and I think I discovered his letters in the run-up to getting a colony of bees in Oxford um, probably as a bit of a um, mode of evasion when I should have been learning about beekeeping but actually was reading all kinds of other things. Um, and... I found him really fascinating he'd written long letters to a hero of his um another natural historian um and he detailed these experiments these really amazing experiments that he made at the time um and I'd been reading these letters for a while before I realized that in fact he was almost completely blind he um had an illness when he was a young man that meant that he was yeah almost completely almost completely um without vision and yet, he'd made these um, stunning discoveries about bees and about the life of the hive.
1: And I, yeah, I became really fascinated about that. So, what does that say about observing? That it's not just about vision.
0: Yeah, I thought I thought about this a lot, particularly because in his letters he uses the word seeing and the word vision and the word observation. He actually titles his letters "New Observations on." on the Natural History of Bees. Um, Wow. And so that made me think what did seeing and what did looking come to mean for Hubert? Um, And maybe it had something, maybe it wasn't just about the eyes, maybe it was something to do with attention and intent, focus and investigation. All of these experiments were done with his assistant, and so they were in this very intimate, very close, um, intense relationship. And that, and that maybe that's something to do with seeing as well. Maybe when we're brought into a relationship, we experience a different kind of looking or a different kind of attention.
1: And there's also the sort of tactile. You talk about feeling better, mm. but emphasis on feeling, not the emphasis on better. Uh and there's a lot of, you know, absolutely wonderful writing about the senses as well. And there's a point where one of your friend friends disagrees with you on whether speaking is a sense or not. Um, and And he oh, says yeah. speaking is about not what you perceive, but it's about what you put out. Yeah, But I feel like throughout the book you 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 really very successfully explore this idea. So much of what we put out is about what comes in. Mm. How did that work in the sense of what you gave to the bees, what they gave you? How do you mean? In the sense of there's there's a bit in, in, in the book where you speak about the bees not... They make sounds, but mm. they also work on smell as mm. well. So all these senses coming together. Mm. Do we speak from different places? Mm. Yeah, I really like thinking about these things. Well, yeah, <laughs> um,
0: And I, I guess I think probably for me in a way, um, learning about the bees and becoming so fascinated and kind of obsessed in their sensory mm. worlds sort of provoked something in me to shift slightly. I think put me more in my more in my body. And maybe and maybe when, you're, when you come into contact with a creature that sees and hears and senses in such a different way, it sort of turns your sensory world upside mm. down or skews it mm. or, mm. or, or um, troubles it slightly. I'm not sure if I've, if I've answered no, the question absolutely. very well, but I guess that's the sort of effect that learning about them had on me. Wow, that's yeah.
1: fantastic. I'd love to talk about the swarm because yeah. there's a chapter where you express fear about the, about them splitting. Um, and it veers off into a wonderful discussion about impermanence, mm. which is a lesson I think most humans struggle with. And it prompts, you know, pretty strong existential crises all around. Yeah. How was it to learn that, about <laughs> that from bees? Yeah. <laughs> they seem like quite nice teachers. or Yeah. Like
0: over and over again, just amazing teachers. So, a swarm, a honeybee colony swarms when it expands so much that it doesn't fit inside the hive anymore. Um, honeybees through summer will always seek to grow as, as much as possible. Um, and, and if you think about the colony as a super organism in itself, it's um, it's a reproductive impulse to swarm um, and split. So mm. the colony will produce a new queen, which will stay in the hive, and the old queen will Fly off with half of the colony to reduce the numbers down again, and then they'll start, they'll start um, growing again. Um, and when I was keeping bees, I found this um terrifying initially mm. because I'd thought that as a keeper, my role was to keep my bees mm. in place, mm. and and what did that mean if actually I was going to lose half of them? And 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 yeah, it was it was a lesson in um in impermanence and in and I guess in possibly the the fallacy of keeping mm. um
1: that it's not about really holding on to really yeah. it's a lighter yeah a lighter relationship
0: yeah and I I guess it's an old adage isn't it sort mm. of the impermanence of all things but I think it's a really interesting thing to think about at the moment um because when we think of the environment and um the natural world there are many things that feel like potentially we're losing at the moment um and so how how to think about how we can keep in a good way and in a um not
1: fearful way Mm. and in a caring way and um yeah i think it's interesting that's fantastic i think um That is a good note to end. (laughs) I really enjoyed that. Thank you so much. Yeah, me too. It's a wonderful book and thank you for writing it. (laughs) And thank you to the bees too. (laughs) Yeah, thank you to (laughs) the Thanks.